All right, you guys have your Bibles open, Revelation chapter 11? Okay, we come to Revelation 11, where the two witnesses, um, famous witnesses of the book of Revelation, are um, being taught about. Now, there's lots of controversy as far as who, what is the identity of these two witnesses. And so, one of the things is, I want to just tell you right off the bat, listen, you don't have to hate me because you think it's Enoch and I think it's Moses, okay? Like, the Bible doesn't tell us. We can... We can agree to disagree, and it's not a matter of salvation, and it's just conjecture. It's just fun. I don't know why the Bible doesn't tell us. I'm kind of like, does he not tell us because we're just not supposed to know and just like mind your own business? Or does he not tell us because he wants us to search the scriptures to find it? And I think as we search the scriptures, the Bible is the best um, interpreter of the Bible, and so we get clues all the way through. And one of the things you find when you study the book of Revelation is that it forces you into hundreds of Old Testament passages that you have to be familiar with. The book of Revelation, as I've said before, it's not a hard book to understand. But there's so many references, and really you need to have a working knowledge of all the books of the Bible because there's clues in every part of the Bible to unlock what Revelation is saying. And we do get some clues. But the other thing is, for me this morning, I was thinking about like the identity of who these guys are. And, and all the commentaries, you can read commentators, and I'll just tell you right now, something it's Zerubbabel, and Joshua, not the Joshua of the Old Testament, but the high priest at the time of Zerubbabel. Some have said John the Baptist. Some have said um, the Apostle John, who's the writer here, could be one of these guys that God uses. Some um, have said Elijah. Some have said Enoch. Some have said Moses. Um, I will tell you kind of where I land on the thing, but again, it doesn't matter. It's not when the Bible's silent, then, then you know, we're, we're speaking out of silence. And sometimes in the Bible's silence, you can speak out of the silence. Because there's other clues and there's things that the Bible gives us. So we'll go through those just for fun. But kind of what the Lord spoke to me as I wanted to go through. So the way I want to attack this this morning is that if we get stuck in who these two guys are and we lose the why and what they're doing, then, then we'll, we'll miss really what's happening here. So let's take a look at this. But, but again, we, we will talk about who and I'll give you some reasons why I think who, who these guys are and how this plays out. But, but more importantly, I want to look at the why. Now, there's, there's going to be a new temple. And I believe, and I'll get to it in a minute, but I believe by the time you get to Revelation chapter 11, you're in the three and a half year mark. We're getting very close to the middle of the tribulation. That would put these two witnesses doing their ministry because it says that they're going to prophesy for exactly 1,260 days or times, times, and half a times or what? Three and a half years. And we know the tribulation period is parentheses with a seven year period of human history. The church is raptured before the seven years begins. That's Revelation chapter 4, where you see the church is caught up. We're not here from Revelation 6 through 19, where we're studying now. The church has already been removed in the rapture. And God begins to pour out His wrath upon the world. The Bible says of you, if you're part of the church, if you're part of Jesus Christ, if you know Him, it says that you have not been appointed to wrath. And, and there's lots of theories out there and ideas. And again, these are not salvation issues and doesn't need to divide us. We just land in different places eschatologically as far as timing goes for me I, I i the one the only one that fits from genesis to revelation as you take the entire bible and the entire council of god's word is where the church is gone before the seven year the seven years happens and i see i see it's the only one that is absolutely consistent all the way through so as we've been studying some of these ominous things i've been reminding us like number one we're, we're kind of seeing this from a bird's eye view right we're watching this at like thirty-five thousand feet because we're, we're not here for these. We're, we're watching from heaven as these things unfold. So as we study this, we, you know, it's fun. It's exciting. We're going to see what's going to happen and how God's going to 
um, deal with Israel. He's also calling Israel back to himself. He's, rege- he's pouring out his spirit on a Christ-rejecting world. But the church has been removed in the rapture, in the bride of Christ. We're in a seven-year feast of the Lamb as we celebrate in Jesus as the bride of Christ. But one of the things that the Bible makes hints to and clues to over and over again, multiple places in the Bible, and here in chapter 11 we'll get one that's very concrete, is that the Antichrist, when he raises to power after the rapture, now the rapture doesn't mark the seven-year period. The seven-year period that, that's described here in Revelation, what chapters, church? I've been teaching this for a while. Re- Revelation chapters 6 through 19 is the seven years in detail, right? But the Antichrist, he rises up um, after the rapture somewhere. And his part of his purpose is, is that there's going to be some mass chaos or, you know, with all the people gone in the rapture, the world is going to be in disarray a little bit. Some things are going to be really intact, right? Like CNN is not going to have missed anybody. They're, they're, they're all still going to be there. Come showing up for work the next day. MSNBC, they'll all be there. Um, you know, places like the United States, even in China, because the, the China has one of the fastest, had one of the fastest growing churches, an underground church in China, and, you know, millions and millions of people that are Christians in China and all over the world where there's Christians in Iran right now, the fastest growing um, um, church in the world right now or movement of, of salvation in the world today is happening in Iran of all places. And God is absolutely pouring his spirit out upon Iran and, um, you know, but in some places, parts of Iran included, Saudi Arabia, for example, they're, they're, you know, if a rapture happens and God takes all the, the church to heaven, there'll be places where, where there's a very minor Christian population and it won't be affected as much. Their infrastructure won't be affected. Their, their daily life won't be affected as much. In, in Saudi Arabia, you can't have a Bible open anywhere, you know, in Saudi Arabia. Delta had to sign a contract with, with Saudi Arabia to fly planes into Saudi Arabia. They would promise, Delta had to promise, that they wouldn't allow a Jew to get on the plane and land in Saudi Arabia. When I travel, uh, we do tours to Israel. I've been, been many times. And um, you, if you have a passport and you have a stamp from Israel in your passport, then you can't go to certain Islamic countries because you have a stamp from Israel. And so, you know, in those places, and, and also part of that contract with Delta is that you can't have a Bible. And so there's also, when you're in Saudi Arabia, you're on the freeway in Saudi Arabia, and you're getting close to Mecca. And as you get close to Mecca, there's big signs on the, on the freeway. And they say, infidels this way. And, and so you, if you're not a Muslim... You're not allowed to take this exit that, that leads into, into uh, Mecca, where Medina is and where the Hajj happens, and you've seen the cabal and that scene that takes place there. You're not even allowed to exit the freeway if you're a non-Muslim um, in that area. And if you do, and you have a Bible with you, they have a wonderful diet program in Saudi Arabia. You know, everybody's trying to figure out the easiest diet. They'll, 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 they'll make you about 10 pounds lighter from your shoulders up if you show up with a Bible in somewhere near Mecca. They take you to a place in Saudi Arabia called Chop Chop Square, and they put you on an instant diet from the neck up. So some places in the, in the rapture, they're not going to be as affected. They're, they're, they're still going to um, function normally. But in, in Israel, the, the temple, it, again, back, back to that. Sorry, guys, I got off a little bit. But back to the temple, and the temple will be rebuilt. So the Antichrist, that was the key. The Antichrist... He's going to rebuild the temple. He's going to make a way so Israel can rebuild the temple. Now, I've got a couple pictures of Temple Mount, what I want to show you. Um, 
I'm not sure what order they're in. I didn't really put them in order. I just gave them to Brian to throw up. So I'll talk through them as he throws them up. But So this, this is the first thing. The reason why I put this picture up there is because you see behind you, you guys, what, what is that thing behind you? Any idea what it is? Okay, it's like the, is it third? I forget. Third, right? It's the third most holy site in Islam. It's there on the Dome of the Rock. Or it's there on the Temple Mount. Okay, the Temple Mount is there in Israel. It's right above the, the Western Wall, the downtown, Old Town Israel. It's the most disputed area of land in the world. And uh, a couple hundred years ago, the, the, um, the Muslims built the, the Dome of the Rock. Next to it is another mosque much bigger that holds 5,000 people called the Aleska, Aleska Mosque. But this little thing you're looking at is called the Dome of the Spirits. Now, the, 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 the Dome of the Rock and, and being on Temple Mount, in our later, our later tours to Israel, it was much more difficult to get up there. And if it was just one or two of us, you can go through the process and go up top. Can't bring a Bible up there. You can't pray up there. It's run by the Muslims. But when Lydia and I went in 98, um, right after we got married, it was, it was still wide open. We actually, Lydia and I actually went into the Dome of the Rock on a tour. We got to walk around. When you walk inside... There's a rock, a bedrock, about the size of this middle section. It's jagged in there. And there's a fence around it um, that's about eight feet tall. And that's why the building is there. Because there on Temple Mount in Israel, there was this bedrock. And the Muslims said this is where Abraham brought, not Isaac, but Ishmael to be sacrificed. It's also the place where they say they believe that, that Muhammad ascended into heaven from. So they built this shrine around this rock. And again, you go in. And it's just bedrock that came out of the earth. The only thing that's it's, it's just the way it was when they built the building around it. And then you walk around and then in, in there they have this basement that is, do you remember the name of it? It's like the basement of the spirits. And, and you, the what? You, you, walk, you walk down in it and, and I don't know, we, we did, Lydia and I did. And I, I'm glad to have had an experience, have been there and done it. But definitely there was a damp kind of weird, eerie feeling when you're in there. Um, and there's a place, and people come, and they pray, and, and, they, and they have it. Well, there's another place that's original bedrock in Israel, and they built this, this dome around it called the Dome of the Spirits. And you can't see it from this picture, but the reason why what it's preserving is not where you have, like, the pavement and what they've built to cover the ground, but it's original bedrock that is there, and it's flat. Well, many people believe that, um, a lot of the Jews believe that the Dome of the Spirits is there, and it preserves the spot where the Holy of Holies would have been in Solomon's temple. And so when, when you go, and again in 98, and as later years went on, our tours of Israel, the kind of experience on Temple Mount changed. Um, Israel doesn't control it. It's in the middle of their now capital, and yet they don't control it. In 67, they went up for the first time in the war, and they, they, they captured Jerusalem. They had the Temple Mount. They liberated it. And the prime minister at the time immediately gave control of the Temple Mount back to the Jordanians. And he did it because he believed it would promote peace. And so, you know, you talk to some of the soldiers in Israel and some of the older guys, maybe they were there at the the war in 67. And they're like, to this day, we have no idea why he would do that. We had it. It was ours. I was there. I was standing on it. But since then, we've given control since 67 to the Jordanians. And so it's been Muslim run. In later years, there's been some uh, some change. Let's go to the next picture. So this is an artist's rendition of possibly what we're reading about here in, in, in Revelation 11. So where the Dome of the Spirits is now, I'll just tell you that um, the Jews have to have a temple to worship. Now there's been, there's going to be five temples biblically 
that, that the Bible talks about, the temple that, 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 that were there. The first had not counted a real temple, but as Moses wandered around with the children of Israel leaving Egypt, God gave Moses the plan to build a tabernacle, a place where God's presence would reside in the Holy of Holies. And it was, it was temporary, and they would tear it down and they would build it. And they would tear it down and build it everywhere they went. And the priest would go in one time a year into the Holy of Holies, and he would make the annual sacrifice for Israel to atone for their sins and for the nation. And one day King David was looking out his window, and David had built the palace very near where this is at. The city of David, actually, if you kind of in this left bottom corner here, kind of starts the city of David where it's at there. It's very close to, to this area. And David is there, and he's looking out his window, and he sees the tent that Moses erected and they carried around the wilderness for 40 years and into Israel and after their, their kings and their history, they were still using this tent. And David said, man, I got a house and God is still living in a tent. I want to build a house for the Lord. And you guys know the story, Second Samuel 7, God comes to David and he says, David, you're a man of war and you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he says that Messiah is going to come from you. And, and so David says, well, God didn't tell me I couldn't gather all the things for the temple. So, Saul, so David spends the latter parts of his years gathering the materials to build the first temple. And then his son Solomon, he, when he's raised and becomes king, he, he builds the first temple with all these things that his father had saved and built for him. And it, and it was the eighth wonder of the world. So much gold that it couldn't be counted. And it, it was just beautiful, Solomon's temple. Well, Solomon's temple, that was the first one. Solomon's temple, years later, um, that was about a thousand years before Christ when Solomon built it. Around 600, the Babylonian Empire, and because of the, the sin and the idolatry of the nation of Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar comes through Israel, and what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He destroys the temple, Solomon's temple. They go back into captivity. The land lays a wasteland there in Jerusalem. And then 70 years, they're in captivity. And about 70 years later, God sends Zerubbabel and Joshua to go back and to rebuild the temple. This is the second temple. And they rebuild it. And under Zerubbabel and Joshua and eventually Ezra and Nehemiah, they begin to rebuild the temple. But it's nothing like Solomon's temple. Well, then you, you fast forward, and that's about 400, 450, 450 years before Christ. You fast forward a little bit, and you get to um, about 20 years before Christ is born. And the king at the time, his name was Herod. And Herod remodeled the entire Temple Mount. He took bulldozers, those land mover things they, they do for gold, and he, he flattened out the area on Temple Mount. Yeah, they had those. That's how we know how to build them today. We found one, like, buried under Israel, and we just, just kidding. But anyways, they did it with manpower, and they flattened out and rebuilt, and Herod rebuilt the temple. That would have been the temple that Jesus was um, dedicated in, that Jesus um, would have turned the tables over, would have been there during the days of Jesus. And then we know in AD 70, Titus Vespasian came through and completely destroyed that temple. And, and so today, the Jews don't have a temple. But in order to rebuild a temple, and really Judaism, and following the Lord according to the law of Moses, you have to have a temple. And so they... they it, it, but the thing is, I'm like, just go build a temple then. You want a temple so bad? You have all this place? Go build it. But they can't. It has to be on the exact place where um, Solomon built it and where the Holy of Holies goes in order for it to be sanctified by the Lord. So that's why this is so disputed. The Jews want to rebuild their temple, but it's Muslim controlled. But it's possible, because I'll show you here in a minute, where um, what the Antichrist is going to do in, 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 um, in this chapter and what we're going to see in Revelation is that the Dome of the Rock will stay, and there's enough room where that Dome of the Spirits is like 40 yards to the north 
which probably marks, and you'll see there's a little, I don't know how, you guys probably can't see that, but there's a north, east, west, south, and it says Dome of the Spirits. That's where it is on Temple Mount. Is there another picture, Brian? There is. Is there one that's just kind of the overview of the whole thing? So the Dome of the Spirits, um, that's probably where they're built. So this is possible what we'll see in the book of Revelation, where it's divided, it's there. Um, you know, I, I kind of uh, have a little theory, too, that doesn't need to be added because it's just my own conspiracy. But, you know, I, I like a lot of these things that we do, and these are great ideas, but I, I think we have to consider as we study the book of Revelation that, um, you know, there's a lot of supernatural that's happening. There's a lot of technology today. You know, when we get to the, the mark of the beast, the beast that the Antichrist is going to set up in the rebuilt temple, it, it's going to have power. It's, it's an object that's going to have superhuman power that, you know, we couldn't understand. Also, you, you know, Islam is going to be defeated before a lot of this stuff happens. And one of the things we're going to see biblically is that they're going to take a, a big blow in the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 36 and 38 as we move forward. And, and so um, very possible that, you know, the Dome of the Rock is not a thing. So some Jews today in Israel... They believe that, 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 that it's in the way and they have to destroy it. Others believe that the Dome of the Spirits marks the actual spot and that, that you can leave it out and build that. All right, let's, let's get back to 11 and cover this. Um, he says, John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and an angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the outer court is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So if that's the case then this would make sense, that the the outer court has been given over to the Gentiles. And this measuring reed that he's given is is like our measuring tape. It was made out of bamboo. They had furlongs, and then after so many furlongs, you had this big, long, six-foot, seven-foot reed that construction workers would use to measure. A furlong is from your fingertip to your elbow, about 18 inches, and then so many of those make up a reed. And he's given this reed to measure it, but he's told to leave out the court of the Gentiles. And what's fascinating about that kind of picture that you saw and that solution is that that solution where the Dome of the Spirits is, if the whole new Holy of Holies goes right over the top of it, there's still no room for the outer courts because the Dome of the Rock. The court of the Gentiles would have to sit on that side. But here John is told to not measure it because the outer courts has been given over to the Gentiles. And then he says, and, and they will tread, I think they can hear me, and they will tread... The holy city, sorry, city under for 42 months. So there it's three and a half years. Um, and I will give power. That's a Greek word, dunamis. That word power is where we get our English word dynamite from. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit is given and we're given power. So these two witnesses are given power to my two witnesses. I'll pass on it. <laughs> all right, all right. It was an old Saturday night skit, Saturday Night Live skit when I was like a kid. We were here to pump you up. <laughs> Those guys. <laughs> okay, that's that's where I uh, that's where I got that from. The power. So, anyways, and I will give them power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. So these guys, listen. You know, so many of us today, right, the pastors, like, they want to be Gucci. You know, there's, there's a thing on Instagram. It's called Sneakers with Preachers, or Preachers with Sneakers. And it's all these preachers, and they got, like, these $800, $1,200, $1,500 shoes on. And, um, and so I wanted to be in the club. 
so I bought I bought a pair of Jordans that were like retro and like ones or something. They were like 400 bucks, but I never got on preachers with sneakers. But um, now I just wear my Vans, but they're like 70 bucks. They're probably not going to work. But um, but these guys, you know, to, to minister and to reach people. Listen, don't miss the point. My point is that sometimes we do. We think that it's so much about how we look or who or you know. But really, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes us effective to witness. You know. And, and, you know, again, so many times today, as some of these young people are coming up in ministry and they, they think they have to, you know, be GQ and be able to fit on the cover of the GQ magazine. Nothing wrong with looking nice, but just know that those things are, are secondary to the power of the Holy Spirit that works through us. You know, Chuck Smith reached more young people than anybody in our generation. You know, they were baptizing thousands of young people in Del Mar every month at, at Costa Mesa when the Jesus People Movement, all young people coming out of the thing. And, Chuck was this old, balding, kind of big belly guy, and he talked real slow, and he wore the same thing every week, and nothing cool, you know, and God just so powerfully used that guy. The Apostle Paul himself, who was mightily used by God, history tells us that he was a weird-looking guy, and his nose was weird, and his eyes ran all the time, and he was short of stature, and that, you know, it wasn't nothing about him, but it was about the power of God. So I'm going to encourage you guys, if that's you, and you're like Paul, or one of those, then you know, it's the power of God that works in our hearts and our lives that makes us effective for Jesus. Amen? And he says in verse number four, and these two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Hey, turn with me to Acts chapter 1 really quickly. Um, So, you know, one of the things that's been cool through this particular study of Revelation for me, and I've taught through the book of Revelation here in this church when we first started uh, about seven years ago already once, and but this time something kind of different has happened. There's some things that are taking place in the book of Revelation that, that make me jealous almost of what's happening with these folks. Like the 144,000 um, Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each of the tribes that, that God's going to seal. I'm like, he gives them this special seal and nothing can hurt them and like puts a seal on them. I'm like, man, that'd be so cool to be a part of that and have this seal. And, and then I read like four other places in the New Testament. It says that you and I have a seal of God on us. And God's like, Listen, yeah, that stuff's cool. I'm going to do that stuff, but I'm already doing all that cool stuff for you right now. And it says very clearly, I've sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And here I'm reading this about these two witnesses. And there's these two, like, cool Old Testament guys that God brings back. And they're standing in Jerusalem. The temple's behind them. And they're calling fire down from heaven. And they're, but they're preaching Jesus. And people, some people have got to be getting saved because the whole point of why they're there is to be witnesses they're rugged, they're clothed in sackcloth like John the Baptist, you know, they're eating locusts, they're just, just hardcore, and, you know, they're calling down fire from heaven and plagues. I'm like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool, Lord, you know. And then God says, look, I'm already doing that for you right now. And then the Acts, he reminds me, Acts chapter 1, in verse number 8, for all of us, do you know that you and I are called as God's um, people to be witnesses for Jesus Christ? Look what he said. He said, but you, everybody say, me, shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you should flex when you say that. Power! That's dunamis. Because you can't just say power. Even though power is a cool word, a cool English word, it still doesn't do it justice from the Greek because it's dynamite. You shall receive dynamite. 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's talking about the entire purpose that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom and that God was going to pour out his spirit upon all people. Now, as we talk about the temples and the need for the Jews to have a temple, and the very thing in Israel today, if you ask the Jews who have rejected their Messiah and you talk to an average Jew today and you say, how will you know when Messiah comes? Now, we know they miss their Messiah, right? But how will you know when Messiah comes? What will they say? They'll say, Messiah will bring peace. And and he'll help us rebuild our temple. And so what is the Antichrist going to do? He's going to bring a false peace treaty and he's going to help them rebuild their their, their temple. And and they're going to believe hook and line and sinker because he's going to do these things. But you realize that from since AD 70 and for us who are in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the church age where you and I live today, and the church age lasts from this, this verse here where the church is born in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 all the way to the rapture of the church, that there's no temple. And there's not going to be a temple in Israel until after the rapture. And the reason is because you and I as Christ followers today, there's no longer need for a temple. A temple was a sacred place where the Holy Spirit dwelt, where the presence of God resided, that once a year God would allow people to come and visit with Him in this unique sense and and this unique experience. And only one person, the high priest, who would live his whole life, like like becoming the Pope or the odds, you know, like we have one Pope we've had all over the years, and you know, all hundreds of people that eventually only one of them gets to become the Pope. The same thing in the system of the high priest, that one of them eventually rises and becomes the high priest, and he's the only one that gets to go in once a year. And then Jesus dies on a cross, and the curtain in the temple that, that Solomon built and Herod redid there that would have been there, it's 18 inches thick. And it says that it's rent from the top to the bottom. Why the top from the bottom? Because only God can tear it from the top. Man would have tore it from the bottom, but God supernaturally rips this thing in half and exposes the one place where the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God resides, where only one person a year gets to go in and be in this special experience of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus dies on a cross, and, and at the same time, supernaturally, this, this, this veil this just rents from top to bottom, exposing the Holy of Holies. And then the Bible says that everybody is invited in. Do you realize that's Gentiles? That's pagans? That's, I mean, everybody. That's radical. We don't understand it because we didn't live Jewish culture back in the first century. But had you understood the, the importance of the Holy of Holies and this opportunity to spend this time in the Shekinah glory of God, and now all of us have that opportunity to be with God? You have the Holy Spirit in you? That didn't happen until after Jesus died on a cross and rose again. 4,000 years of human history, and the Holy Spirit would do works, but never resided inside the hearts of, of people until after Jesus died on a cross. And, and, and the whole thing is, and he tells us, it's kind of like a, a letdown a little bit because it's like uh, the Holy Spirit's going to come in you after Jesus dies and the veil of the temple rants. No more temples. You and I don't need temples. We don't worship. We don't have temples. We have the presence of God. The temple for God for you is anywhere where you meet with God. Amen? And the Lord will meet with you anywhere that you invite him. You know why Jesus went to a wedding in Cana and solved the catering problem for his first miracle at a wedding? Because Jesus goes everywhere he's invited. And where you invite Jesus, he comes. And if you invite him into every part of your life, he's going to come. And there's nothing too ugly for him to come and take over and make better. Because he loves you and he cares. But this radical thing of us being invited in to the Holy of Holies. And no need for a temple. 
And then, and then the Bible tells us, you know, kind of the, 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 the part of the letdown is like, okay, the Holy Spirit is going to come in you, and you're going to have power. And I'm like, yes. I'm going to like shoot fireballs out of my eyes. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I don't know, maybe something out of my hands would be cool. Maybe that auto you can bowl would be like, you know, like Ashley would just be toast. I'd just blow her up from right here, you know. And, um, and then it says, okay, what is this power going to do? It's like, okay, cool. Like, okay, the power is going to, he's going to come upon me. I'm going to have power and I shall be a witness. Really? But, but no, but it's great. It is what the power of the Holy Spirit is intended to do in your life. Jesus said, go into all nations and make disciples of all men, teaching them to do all things that I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the great commission that we're all commissioned to go. And when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, came in the believer like never before, no more temple. Now we all get to meet with God right here. And this power is going to make us a witness. And so your, your life is to be a witness. Your life is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And that's not just for the pastors. It's actually quite the opposite biblically. A pastor's job is to equip the saints. The saints' job is to do the work of the ministry. A pastor's job is to teach and to equip and, and to send you out. To, and, and healthy sheep begat sheep. And so if you're healthy and you're being taught well and you're growing and you're being encouraged, then you go out and you tell other people. But as a body, you know, there. You, have you guys ever done anything or heard anything on... Um, I think the term is exponential growth, how it works. So if you take a number, so you take one and you multiply it by itself, so it becomes two, and then you multiply two by itself, becomes four, and then exponentially numbers grow. So the stat is that if every person in our building invited one person to church and shared their faith at this time next year, how many people will be in church this morning? Twice as many people. And then in, in two years, there would be four times, and then eight times, and then 16 times, and then 32 times, and then, no, I'm just kidding. I could have done that one, but beyond that, I don't know. I might have ran out. There's a famous story, and it helps you understand kind of how fast the church would grow, how fast our, our lives would grow. But in India, there was a guy, and he did a favor for the king, and then it was, it was supernatural or super phenomenal. The king was over beside himself, and he just wanted to repay the guy with anything he wanted. And the guy brought a checkerboard in, and he put a grain of rice on the first um, checker. And he said, King, all I want is I want you to take that grain of rice, and in the second square I want you to multiply it, and I want you to do it again um, until you cover the checkerboard, and I want rice as my reward. And the king was like, that's all you want? Sure. So he gave it to his, his guy to go take care of it, and the guy took the checkerboard, and he came back to the king, and he said, King, we can't fulfill this request. And he said, it's just rice. Why not give him rice? And he said, you see, because by the time you get to the middle of the checkerboard, there's not enough rice in all of India to fulfill this because of exponential math. And it grows that fast as you exponentially grow. And so, you know, as we witness, that, that, that can happen in the church as well. Amen? All right. So you guys want to know who these two guys are? Noah. That's a new one. Or she was saying, no, uh, do you want to know? No, I don't No. Uh, um, so listen, I'll just say this real quickly. And we are running out of time as I usually do. Um, pretty much Bible scholars agree that one of these two witnesses, if you, if you go through all the biblical clues is Elijah. And I'll just tell you, if you want to write it down or you want to read it in Zechariah, um, in chapter four, the Bible says that God is going to send back 
Elijah. And so um, everybody just expects that Elijah is going to come back. And so Zechariah 4 says that, that God would send Elijah. And so much so that the Jews understood this prophecy to this day. So when they celebrate Passover, they leave a chair open in case Elijah shows up because he's supposed to come back. They even play a game during Passover to teach the kids. And they'll have one of the relatives knock on the door during the Passover celebration. And the mom will say to the daughter or the dad, oh, my gosh, someone's at the door. Do you think it's Elijah? Then the little kid runs to the door and they're, is it Elijah? And they open the door and like, grandma, it's just you, you know, but. And then when John the Baptist came on the scene, they approached John the Baptist and they said, are you Elijah? And John said, no, I'm not Elijah. And so because of that and many, many things, there's, there's pretty much consensus across the board that one of these two witnesses that God is going to use or bring back is Elijah. The other fascinating thing about Elijah is that, do you guys remember how Elijah died? He didn't die. He was taken up into a fiery chariot and he didn't experience physical death. The Bible says that of every person... That, that you're uh, assigned to death once and then the judgment so that everybody will, will die. And so that's why Enoch becomes a very popular candidate for the other one. Because of all the Bible history, there's only two people that never tasted physical death in the Bible. You know, even, um, um, who's the guy that Jesus resurrected? Mary and Lazarus and, Lazarus, Lazarus. <laughs> I said Mary and Lazarus. I meant Mary and Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus rose from the, from the dead, but what happened to Lazarus eventually? He died, right? So, but Enoch is this character in Genesis right before the flood, and, and he has this really cool relationship with God. It says that they would walk in the garden in the cool of the day, the same way that you and I are supposed to have a relationship with God today, where it's just intimate. He's our friend. We talk to him. He talks to us. We spend time with him. And so Enoch has this like coveted, awesome relationship with God, and it's like they were just having such a good time one day walking and, and spending time together, Enoch and God in Genesis. It says that Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. And, and so, so he just, God just says, man, I'm tired of coming down to your house and hanging out and visiting. Just come up and hang out with me and be with me all the time. So Enoch just disappears. Only other person that doesn't face physical death here on earth. So for that reason, and these two witnesses die, and then they're called up to heaven. They die, they're raised up. And so people say, well, man, Enoch and, and Elijah, that just makes sense. And that, that was on that kind of train for a while. I've got off it a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I think that Enoch is still a, a much better picture of the church. That's his role in Genesis. Because you know what happens right after God takes Enoch up to heaven in Genesis? The flood of Noah happens. And Noah and his family, they have to go through the flood. The nation of Israel today that are going to rebuild this temple and they're going to be a part of all this, they, those that have rejected Jesus, he's not done with them, right? God loves Israel. He's going to call them back to himself. He hasn't abandoned them. His promises that are thousands of years old are still stand. So Israel is going to go into this seven-year period where the church doesn't. So like Noah and his family, they went on the flood and they went into the tribulation. Enoch is taken out of the way before that. Enoch is a picture of the church. He's a picture of relationship. And so you and I are a picture of, 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 of that same thing where it's, it's relational in the church. And then the other thing is, is that if this is happening in the three-and-a-half-year mark, what major event has already happened before these two witnesses come back? The rapture. So now Enoch is not all of a sudden in a class by himself anymore, right? Enoch is one of millions and millions and millions of people that have never tasted physical death because the rapture happened. And, and anybody who goes up in the rapture will also not face physical death. So it kind of disqualifies that characteristic of not physical death. And then look at verse 5 real quick. It says, 
Um, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Who, who breathed fire? Who called fire down from heaven multiple times in the Old Testament? Elijah did. Mount Carmel, 400 prophets of Baal. Elijah calls down fire. Remember when the 50 guys showed up? That's a pretty funny story in the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter 1. The king sends his captain and 50 men. He said, go get that, go get that man of God. I want to talk to him. And the, 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 prophet show, or the, the captain shows up to Elijah and he says, Elijah, my king wants to see you, O man of God. And Elijah says, really? He says, well, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And fire comes down from heaven and kills the guy and his 50 men. So I would hate to serve this king. I'm serious. So what the king does is he tells the next captain in line, take 50 men and go get Elijah. So the guy takes 50 men and he goes back to Elijah and he says, Elijah, man of God. He says, my king wants to see you. And Elijah says, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And fire comes down from heaven and kills the captain and 50 of his men. So that wonderful king, he takes the next captain in line and he says, take 50 and go get Elijah. Same thing. Like, did you not see what he did to the first 250 you sent? But at least the third guy was wise. He comes back. He gets on his hands and knees and he puts his head down. He's like, man of God, I got a family. Don't hurt me. I'm sorry. Please be nice. And he begs Elijah in a nice way. And he says, my king really wants to talk to you. And then, um, and so we see that. So again, there Elijah. And then what does the other one do? It says, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemy. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls. Who shut up heaven in the Old Testament? Elijah. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. So again, there's some consistencies here. There's some clues here. Strong clues that it's Elijah. Now let's look at the other one. It says, um, in the days of their prophecy, in the days of their prophecy, they have power over water to turn them to blood. Who turned water into blood in the Old Testament? Moses, when the first plague, he turned water into blood. Um, the other thing is that um, it says, it goes on, it says, turn water into blood and to strike the, earth with, strike the earth with all plagues. Who struck the earth with plagues? Moses and the ten plagues, right? And often as they desire. So these two guys... They're there. They're in front of the temple. They're witnessing. Um, again, don't, don't, I'm not trying to be dogmatic on these things. When the Bible's silent, there's, there's no place for dogmatism in, in our theology here. I'm just telling you what I think, and sometimes I'm afraid to tell you what I think because I don't want to sway what you think. What I'd rather you do is do your own homework, look at this stuff, read it, check it out, make your own decisions. And, you know, we, we can fight over areas that matter, like salvation, how you get to heaven, those things we've got to get right. Some of these things we don't necessarily have to get right, and they're fun, and we're not going to be here anyways, right? And so, again, don't, use the, in the, don't lose the why in the who. And they're witnesses, and you and I are called to be witnesses, right? Okay, we're almost done. I see some of you guys giving me this one. I know that's the preacher's sign to shut up, but I'm not going to just yet. Give me a minute. In verse 7, it says, And when they finish their testimony, the beasts of, that ascend out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Hey, we, we got into detail about that a couple weeks ago, about this beast that comes out of the bottomless pit, a Badion and a Polyon. This is Satan, the Antichrist. Um, he's and exactly who he is. I, I can't be dogmatic again on that as well. But he, he's in that vein, whether he's Satan himself or one of Satan's um, top generals and top angels and bad guys that is, is doomed in this pit. Nonetheless, Satan prevails over these two witnesses. They have this epic battle in um, Jerusalem, in front of the temple, as they're doing their work. It says they're there three and a half years. And because where this all times out, I, again, I see this kind of culminating at the three and a half year marker. I think we're about the middle of the seven years right now. Because as we get into next, um, the next couple of chapters, 
we're going to see the abomination of desolation. We know that happens at the three and a half year mark. So if that's the case, that would put the two witnesses in the first three and a half years where they come pretty early in the beginning around where the four horsemen begin to ride and they, and they do their ministry. And then in the, they're there for three and a half years. And then in that point, this um, a, a Badion or a Paulion that we studied that was set out of this bottomless pit who is the beast or Satan or, or a henchman or just this really evil demon that's reserved for this time. He wars with them. He defeats them and their dead bodies lay in the street. Listen, this is the only time in the book of Revelation where you see the world rejoicing. No other place. You see rejoicing in heaven, but not on the earth. And it says, And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also, I'm glad he says this, where also our Lord was crucified. That makes no, no, no argument about what we're talking about, right? We, everybody knows, but nobody would argue about where our Lord was crucified. That was in Jerusalem. But what's interesting is that Jerusalem, which is the holy city, is also has a dark side to it because it's very secular. And here it's called Sodom in Egypt, which is, which is a, a, you know, very negative. And then it says in verse 9, Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. So in Israel, the tradition is when somebody dies, they bury him right away. So we were in Israel one time when the prime minister died. Um, and it was like he died like on a Friday night and we had touring on Saturday and the entire country had to change and because the, he died on a Friday and is you know on hospice and was old and and but but Saturday morning was the funeral and immediately they they don't embalm immediately they bury you the next day and so that's the culture there but they wouldn't allow these guys to be buried in the graves and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice everybody say rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So the, there's this, this new uh, pagan holiday. I think it's called like Halloween 2.0. And they, they hang out in front of their houses like statues of zombies and dead bodies and, you know, things of these prophets. And they're celebrating. They're sending gifts to one another. Any of you guys see the newsreels around the world after 9-11? Other countries around the world burning our flag and celebrating and passing out candy in the streets after 9-11. One of our pastors was in the country of Jordan during, that, during 9-11 and he said they were celebrating in the streets. And um, So this is what's happening. They're celebrating in the streets. And you know, The other thing is too, just to pay quick attention here, is that it says that the entire world will see this. So that has to speak of the day that you and I live in. Because the, there's, there's technology that makes this possible. A hundred years ago, if two, two witnesses, two, two prophets were dead in front of, in Jerusalem somewhere, how would you and I know that? How would we see that? How long would the news take to travel to you and I in 1901 from Jerusalem? At its best, right? So this happens immediately. So again, this is, this is the technology and the day that we live in, the last days. And Daniel says in, in chapter 11 that one of the signs of Jesus' return and the rapture in the last days is that knowledge would increase and that people would travel to and fro. And that's a day that's very unique in all of human history. You know, if, if I'm a young earther, so I'm looking at like 6,000 years of human history. But for like 5,900 years, you know, men didn't travel the world to and fro like we do today. Boats would have been your fastest and best way to get where you wanted to go. But if you were in central Kansas in 1900 and you wanted to go to Beijing... You know, you get a cart and buggy and you got to get to the water and get on a boat and then get to China and then get through the land on a horse or whatever. And, you know, today, if we want to go from central Kansas to Beijing, 
you get on a plane tonight and you're there tomorrow and you get on a plane to come home and you're back the next day. And that's the day the Bible says would be to mark the end times. We're done. We are done, you guys. So just, just bear with me as we just want to finish this. I don't leave it for next week. I have two more verses to read and we'll be done. Now, after these, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet with great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. So that same thing, Revelation, Mark there and by verse 12, Revelation 4.1, same words that were used in the rapture, although this is not the rapture. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. Seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's stand together. So I don't know. Maybe um, timing-wise, and again, you can't be dogmatic on this, but maybe as these two witnesses and the Antichrist finally defeats them, he murders them, their dead bodies are laying in the street for three and a half days, maybe that's his opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt Jewish temple and to declare himself to be God and to set up this statue and cause the abomination of desolation which is going to take place exactly at the three and a half year mark and maybe that's the timing. And anyways, I think we're close. I think as we go through this, and we study this and we get to 12 and then 13, we're going to see the abomination of desolation. We're going to see this event happen, kind of puts it in, in perspective um, where we are in the great tribulation. And so, you know, one of the things the Bible says is that, you know, if, if, if people say that we go mid-tribulation or the end, one of the things you can always ask is, well, there has to be a temple. It has to be there in the beginning. So we can't be in the great tribulation or into any part of the tribulation until there's a temple. So when a temple starts actually going up in Israel, we'll have another conversation. But, um, but you, can't, you can't have those events without a temple. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day, God. We thank you for the study of Revelation. And, Lord, we know that some of this stuff, Lord, we, we don't understand all of exactly how it's going to go down. We know that we have the entire Bible, and there's clues all the way through the Bible, and it's fun to study it. Lord, we know that we won't be there for these things, Lord Jesus, that we've been removed at this time. And, in what First Thessalonians says, that we'll be caught up in the Lord in the air to meet the Lord. And so, Father, we, we pray, Lord, that these things would not give us comfort in the way that, oh, we're not going to be there. we got nothing to worry about. But that they would give us the desire to be witnesses. That we don't want to see the people we love to go through these things, to be there for this event without the protection of Jesus. And so, God, we pray, Father, that you'd make us witnesses. You'd help us to share our faith with, with loved ones, with friends, with family, God. And, Lord, we love you. We thank you. And, we just pray you pour your spirit out upon each one of us, Lord. And Father, we thank you that if, if you touch somebody's heart in here today, God, that their life would change for you and that, uh, Lord, they would get plugged in and grow in you, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.